Hello, I'm Tim McLaughlin, and this is a Maywa podcast. The Working Traveler was a workshop held at the Maywa Textile Symposium on October 17th, 2007. The panel consisted of John Gillow, Norja Hanville Grammy, and Charlotte Kwan. Each member of the panel spoke about their personal experience as a working traveler, how they got started, the reason for their journeys, and how travel and the interaction with other cultures has changed their lives. In this, the third of four episodes, Charlotte Kwan speaks about how she started Mewa Handprints and how this business led her to start working with craftspeople in India. Charlotte speaks about the Mewa approach to craft and how it is designed to promote high-quality work while at the same time protecting the artisan's livelihood. She also speaks about the goals of her travel and how she has managed the many challenges of working successfully in two countries, oceans apart. I'm going to begin with, uh, I went to school, uh, finished high school, and then went to various different colleges and tried to figure things out. I think the most I, what the, the courses I stayed longest at was silk screening and became a journeyman silk screener. And, um, but I never finished anything, actually. I, I never, I sort of have this personality <laughs> that I'm always sort of feeling like I don't have enough time. So when I get, when I've sort of taken what I need from something, it's very hard for me to finish it because I, I also know where I'm going pretty strongly. And I get these feelings like, okay, that I've had enough of this. I can't actually spend any more time here because I've got to actually get there. So these are personality traits that I struggle with all the time. So I never actually finished any schooling. Um, I almost finished a three-year course at Cap College and then didn't continue. Um, so my, uh, I guess my initial... It's kind of interesting. My, my very first textile memory is my grandmother. I lived with my grandmother, and uh, it was her making lace. And uh, she did this incredible bobbin lace, and I would always come home and she'd be working on it. And I never talked to her about it. I never learned it. I wasn't interested in it until she passed away. Mm. And then it was like, oh, my God. Mm. She, that was so complex, what she was doing, and her work was so beautiful. It was surrounded me. I never actually even knew how she took one, how she made one little hole in that lace. So it did become something that has made me um, have this really deep desire to know how things are done by the people that actually are masters and that, that do it. I originally thought I would do all my own work. I would do commission work that kind of interested me in textiles, in, in surface design. And I got very uh, intrigued by plant dyes. And whenever I had any money, I would try to travel. I would travel to places where I could maybe find some indigo dyers or some matter dyers or so forth. And I actually did a lot of traveling, not in India. It was more Indonesia, Thailand, and China. And um, what my initial thought was that I would take all these recipes, these wonderful recipes, old recipes. So when we were talking about natural dyes earlier, <coughs> what happened was that, what happens with natural dyes is that, that how to make color is hugely powerful to an artist or a culture or mm-hmm. a community. And it was rarely written down, mm-hmm. these recipes. That intrigued me. And for that 
reason when synthetic dyes came and were so snappy and easy and easier and easier and easier, they replaced natural dyes ever so fast. And the information has become lost so quickly um, that some of us, uh, we just can't, I can't bear it. I can't bear all that. I, I love synthetic dyes. I love computers. I love all the things that are coming that are available to us. I can't bear that we let so much go slip away so easily because of our attraction to the new. So, um, yeah, originally I was going to do all natural dyes in my work and somehow I was going to weave into or do surface design around these recipes or maybe do a book that combined food and dyes and peoples and cultures or whatever. And in the meeting of these people, um, as I interviewed them or as I tried to learn from them, I was astounded that the problem was they couldn't find a market. And it became my creative process turned completely around to finding creative ways to do business. And I struggled with that. I, you know, I kind of how my friends were artists and so forth. And they really thought I, would, I was selling out because I was in business. And I, I became a middle, middle man. Mm -hmm. And I became a trader and so forth. So I got a lot of flack about that. But I didn't, it didn't bother me at all because I really found it hugely creative to find a way to consistently trade with, at first it was one indigo dyer in China and then it was one natural dyer in, in Thailand and then um, various met different people in Indonesia and so forth. So that became what, what Maiwa became. It, and Maiwa has become whatever I've needed it to become, actually, <laughs> as a business. And we, I was asked, I think by Moira on my lecture night, well, how does one person do this? And, you know, you have all these people. How does one person? But I was one person. I Really, I was one person. Yeah. <laughs> that's how you do it. <laughs> and if, you, if you're the best juggler, you get the best organization. Exactly. Yeah, that's all it is. It is. And, um, you know, I, I got married and had two children and uh, everything has to kind of moosh around everything else and the business kind of I love being in business and be, having my own business but I was just selling at a table actually in, in Granville Island that's where I started and I did I did a Christmas week and I made three thousand dollars I thought Oh my God! Money, money for old roads. Three thousand. I thought this was the Europe. I couldn't believe that I'd actually made three thousand dollars, and I, I kind of had it in the, in a, in a drawer. I wouldn't even put it in the bank, and because uh, I just loved it. Like, oh my God, that came from me making things, and I sold. It was a very addictive <laughs> feeling that I, I continue to love, and um, I thought three thousand dollars. I can. I could open a store. <laughs> I could. I could have a studio. I could. That three thousand dollars became in my head, you know, twelve thousand dollars kind of thing. I had spent it so many times over, but I applied to Granville Island and I went through a whole jury process and that didn't work. Um, we got there was four hundred applications for a space down the island and it went to fifty and then finally over months it went down to three people and then two people and then I didn't get it. Oh. So it was. Like, okay, so I had my son, and, and then I got pregnant again with my daughter, and the Grand Blanc came to me. They were doing the net loft, <coughs> and they said, would you like to go through the jury process again? And I said, no, 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 there's no way I'm not going through that again. And then, um, I don't know, I had a 
turned the next morning, I thought, oh my God, why did I say no? <laughs> so I phoned back, I said, yeah, I'll go through it again. And actually, by that time, they'd shortlisted, so I joined in at 10. They'd already done the 400, 300, whatever. And then uh, we went down, and I got, I was first chosen, and I got to choose my space. So I chose Mewa, the biggest space. <laughs> and my dad, who was in real estate, went, what are you thinking? You're crazy. You're just going to fail. Like, what are you thinking? You're going to have to pay rent every month. It's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. And I figured out that what my bottom line, my break-even point, was $338 a day. And I panicked, absolutely <laughs> panicked, thought, how am I gonna make, going to make or sell $338 a day? And I've never sold $338 a day. <laughs> I've always exceeded that, and it was like pretty exciting for me. Um, so then uh, the business did still was my work combined with um, other work that I was starting to represent. And really, when I came to India, which was 17 years ago, that's when it, it may was 22 years downstairs. Um, when I came to India, that's when I decided I can be fully... I can fully uh, spend my energy representing, and I kind of let go of needing to... I mean, I, I've always had my own studio space that I can never let go of, and I'm always working in the dipod and always testing and that sort of thing, but I didn't actually need to produce anything. I was quite satisfied with working with artisans and, and finding their... how to make them succeed. So sometimes that is that we have to do a tremendous amount of fussing and testing and figuring out what, why their dyes aren't color fast or whatever, or doing lots of research. Behind the scenes work mm -hmm. uh, is what we tend to, where we tend to see ourselves at. So Maiwa became full-time um, trading and representing artisans, and our whole mandate is that we we go in and we partner. We don't everything's transparent everything that all our costing all our what we how we sell is all transparent with the artisans and we work on costing together we work on quality control together that's probably our strongest um, role is quality control finding quality raw materials quality um, doing things like having blocks recarved re things capital expenses that are very very burdensome to our artisans and we partner with them and we don't ever leave them unless they ask that we leave you know um, that's a real issue is to go in as a retailer or as a buyer and to leave is almost worse than never having gone at all that is one uh, it's a learning curve huge learning curve and we're still on it trying to find the best most uh, constructive way to trade uh, in a way that we're not being stupid either we need to for for them to survive we have to survive for us to survive they have to survive sort of thing it's a it is a very much coming up together uh, feeling that I, I, I am very strong about but um, we do stick with the artisans that we uh, initially work with if they have, no matter how much I personally may like a product, that uh, a weave or structure or whatever, if a community or an artisan or a 
cooperative have a local market we, and it's strong and vibrant, we don't get involved. That's the strongest, best market. Mm -hmm. But what happens is that's what John was talking about, this very, very good quality where, where craft, the benchmark of their work is set very, very high. That is hugely being eroded with the, with the tourist industry, with tourist market, and with the mm, mass-produced craft market. The, the, ho the holistic or the uh, side of craft is um, being very eroded so that you get them producing fast for some markets for production or for the tourist market. And those within the community that can do the very, very best work are not finding markets. That's where we come in. We come in very sensitively and we do an awful lot of um, conversation and meetings prior to establish um, wages and costing and, and so forth and what it is that we're looking for because they often are look, think we're looking for tourist craft and cheap and um, just for the most part. Crap, is the, crap is the word. Yeah, okay, I hate We've to got use to, that. We, You've got to avoid crap. Yeah, you, at all costs you have to because that is not craft. And so that's our role and our role is always um, evolving and we spend a tremendous amount of time in dialogue and I'm known for, for, for meetings and <laughs> because I function outside my language all the time. Uh, so I have to um, constantly meet with the artisans, either craftswomen or craftsmen, and say and try to understand. I have translation a lot and sometimes not, but try to understand what it is. Where's our where's our reason for being together, and where do I not belong, and where do I need to push, and where do I need to be a little bit more silent or. So we have, just to give you the structure of Maywa a little bit, um, we have 20 people who work for us here in Vancouver. So we have the two shops downstairs, which you all know about, and Maywa East, where when it's not symposium, it's uh, our working studio upstairs. And then we have the warehouse downstairs where everything comes in, which we've now opened to the public on Thursday, Friday, Saturdays, and Sundays. And then on, and we have also here the um, Maywa Foundation, which started a few years ago, um, and it's been a dream of mine to have a foundation to be able to raise money for very kind of small micro grants, so small grants that don't usually fit in some of the large NGOs. It's not possible for some of these individual artisans to apply. So we are granting is between $500 and $1,500, and it's for individual um, capital expenses, maybe around um, building a well or getting a bicycle or buying pots or redoing blocks, that kind of thing. So quite small but quite extremely important um, aspects of the work of an artisan. And we also do production of our... Um, research material we put into either books or um, informational, educational documentaries and educational printed material. So that's an ongoing aspect of the company and one I feel very, very strongly about. And then you're sitting in our library and our, what is our research library. So this is open to the public 
and um, we are very, again, we try to share as much as we possibly can to get that information out there as to the very, um, very important world of craft that gets quite stuck in this position of being an art or an uh, act of creation, and then it's also a traded item. So sometimes it gets um, misunderstood. And we feel very strongly that craft with staying alive within a community is um, very, very healthy for any community. Our community, uh, the Robari community, the Banjara community, the Sindhis, every community that has a, a vibrant, healthy craft activity is uh, that hasn't been manipulated by aid organizations or charities or whatever is is very um, it's an important aspect or or pillar of a community and we feel that we can use Maiwa if we understand that role of craft and we can use Maiwa as a way of perhaps keeping some links going because in this in this world as John said it's it, it's almost beyond our comprehension how fast things are changing mm -hmm. and how fast things are um, uh, disappearing mm -hmm. and silently disappearing. These are languages, language of the stitches. It's a fully evolved, fully created language uh, and of, of dyes and of, of, of textiles, of, of the loom. And they're getting fragmented with some kinds of trading, say the large trading where a craftsperson no longer does an entire process but it's factorized out. Um, so it's disintegrating that way and then sometimes just silently it's disappearing. An incredible loom uh, warp structure, it just gets passed down from family to family and then it just disappears out because the family's not there anymore or they've gone off to the city to have educa be educated and so forth. And I. I think that's part of my daily panic, <laughs> actually. I'm feeling like I don't have enough time is that I, I know from my work. I've gone back to places only after two years and it's seen it's it. It's gone. gone. Mm -hmm. It's gone. And you just go, oh, yeah. where's all the weavers? <laughs> Where do they go? And they're in Nepal breaking, or they're a quarry, or, or they're in, a, in Nepal building roads. And you just, it, it um, yeah, it's, it, 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 it so I feel endlessly that um, I hope I, I never ha have to stop this because I love what I do. So, and then on the Indian side, uh, we have we work with with in, uh, everywhere from Kutch to Nagaland on the Burmese border to Kutch on the Pakistan border. We work from Himachal all the way really down to Kerala and into northern Tamil, and we work with what started with embroiderers and then it, it, it sort of has expanded out to uh, all kinds of textile from weaving to embroidery to um, block printing and so forth. And because we're so strongly involved in supporting natural dyes, we've now obviously become involved with farmers and water specialists and um, soil people and so forth. So that's inevitable. It's craft is so integrated and textiles are so integrated. So we work with artisans all throughout India, and as of about four, five years ago, we have a studio in, in Bagru, in the village outside of Jaipur, um, that we kind of bring everything to, and that's become where we 
uh, do all our sewing. We used to do all our sewing here. Now only 20% of our sewing is here. And it's not, a, you know, some people move offshore for, for labor. It's not that. And the sen because the reason we needed to was uh, the artisans were not understanding where their product ended. Mm -hmm. And in this way, they can all come to our studio. They, they train up. They bus up. They meet each other. We have incredible... In, uh, in, an, in the past, artisans never really mixed. They never... You know, when we would be down in the south and they'd say, oh, you're... You know, um, we'd say, well, we're heading to Kutch. It'd be like we were going to... To the moon. To the moon. They'd be like, wow. <laughs> and so many times I'd say, yeah, come. Come, we're on a train. Let's go together. And they're like, no, no, no. I'd say, yeah, come, come, come. Let's go together. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. And so, but actually for craft, for these traditional, highly evolved crafts to survive, artisans themselves know they have to work together now. And so we have our, you know, dyers from, from South go to Bengal to help the dyers there and information. And, and they also are very reticent to share information. These are, these are family secrets. Their family, it's their inheritance. It's their heritage and it's their inheritance. But they are seeing now that actually by sharing information, it's not, um, they're not actually destroying anything. It's getting destroyed all by itself. And if they... And now, for instance, we had this issue where we, we had dyers from Koyogudam in the south of India go to our dyers in Bengal, because our weavers in Bengal, because they wanted to learn natural dyeing. And Srinath was like, no, 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 please, madam, don't make me do this, because I'll have to give secrets away. I said, Srinath, please, they really need some help. You know, they just, just indigo then, just do the indigo. And he went, and of course, he learned so much about weaving from the Bengalis. He'd never been there, and he was so grateful. And he goes, now every year they go back and forth. And <laughs> it's, it's fabulous. It really need, does need to happen, but there is that reticence, and very understandably. And I go in a little bit crass all the time, going, yeah, no, no, come on, let's do it. And, <laughs> and sometimes it's good, and sometimes they pull me aside and say, Charlotte, we're, we're, this can't happen. And ultimately, it usually does in the end, <laughs> in their own way, but timing is everything. So we do have this studio, this incredible studio, Bagru Mahesh, you see coming in and out. His family um, let me use the whack of land, and then we built a sewing, well, it's a three-story now that typically in Indian style, they're going to put two more stories on top, and I have no idea if the structure can take that, but anyhow. <laughs> um, we have our, we, it was just our sewing on the bottom, but now it's our packing, and then our sewing and pattern drafting and so forth is the second floor, and then up top is designing, and I have a little flat. So it, and then we have all our dyes are there. We have 10 indigo pits and two, three matter um, dyeing and one uh, lizarin, and we, we, everything is, can be, it's not that all our dyeing is done there. One style of dyeing is done there, but all of our finishing and so forth that, can't be done in the villages done there. So um, also villages can come, for instance, uh, that in Damatka they came to Bagru to learn the sewing. We taught all, did all the sewing instruction and teaching there, but now they have to teach anybody, any of the craftspeople that want to come. And so to sew the bedding, for instance, Damatka decided they wanted to do it themselves, which we really support as much being left to the artisans as possible. So they didn't want us sewing it anymore. They wanted to learn how to sew it themselves. So they came, they learned 
how to miter corners and do buttons and buttonholes and all that. And so then they went and now they're doing their own um, finishing. So it's a, it, it's a production slash training place uh, and meeting place, this village in Bagru. And then this is it. This is Maywa. <laughs> it just started from one person and it's never stable. It's never like a given that we'll make money. <laughs> but I try not to lose money, and I, I'm very, um, the way we do business is quite differently. For instance, we do do wholesale, we do retail. I like retail way more than wholesale. But we do wholesale, uh, and we'll never, um, we'll never take on terms, for instance. We'll never uh, let people buy on credit. I'll never take chances. I did that. I'll never take chances. And I shouldn't actually say I don't like wholesale. I don't understand wholesale as much, so we keep it very small. And we love every all the aspects that we do, but people ask us all the time, can't you wholesale, could you wholesale, we've got five stores, can you wholesale to us in New York? And we go, no, I'm sorry, we can't do that. Um, they don't pay. Yeah, they don't pay. And if they do they pay, got, they, got they grind you down, yeah, and they tell you that, you know, oh, well, at the time, you know, you're... you're Trying to get the money, trying to get the money, and then then they suddenly like, oh, well, your stuff faded, and mm-hmm. it was in our window, and it's like, I'm not paying you for this, not paying you for that, and so I don't, we don't need that kind of um, business. So you do, I'm not chasing business, for instance. I'm trying to trying to build the business with all these artisans, knowing that 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 aspect is our responsibility. Their responsibility is to do incredible work and to be. Um, and to not let themselves down. So I have to push constantly. Quality control is a nightmare. Yeah, might I ask Yes. The, the tendency for people going into the West, into the third world, is to be far too kind oh, in terms of quality yeah. control. You can see how hard people are working. They're poor. And so you accept. And they, to have a, have a look at it, they think, they sense that you're soft. Mm-hmm. They think you're kind and you help them or whatever. And they... In the end, I mean, I've always been a total failure at commissioning any work whatsoever because it's always been utter crap. And yeah, you have to. You've got to be very strict. Very, you have to be very tough. That's my role, and I take it proudly because I so believe in their work. But they'll, they'll cut a corner anywhere that they possibly can. I think one of the strengths we have is that we, we jointly set the costing. So there's no hidden agenda there. Uh, so we work together on it, and they know I need to make this amount of money, and I have the staff. And even though, you know, we pay our staff so much more than they pay their staff, they, there's that huge amount they have to learn about our quality of, or not quality of life, but our cost of living. Mm-hmm. It's sort of that's a huge, huge. That sometimes can take forever yeah. uh, to educate, but. Um, but then I will ha- I, br- I cut no corners and I have I, I just cause tremendous grief over quality. Yeah, I'll never. St- I you know they'll say we, we had this great thing when the earthquake happened and the women they're always trying to get the embroidery stitches bigger. I mean that's just a given. And so as you imagine if the embroidery stitches are bigger, they can do it faster. But then it's now what's happened in catches is diabolical because now catchy embroidery is done in China. But not the embroidery that we do, because the Chinese cannot copy it. 
And so they're sort of starting to realize that. But at the earthquake time, you know, there's so much grief in, in Kutch at the time. And it was, you know, I, I was so pained by what had happened. It's this area that I loved so much is just absolutely devastated. And so we had our, our meeting after about a month after. And they said, okay, well, you know, my family lost so many people and my family lost so many people. And this, my, my mother's very shock, in shock and very ill. And so we heard all these terrible stories. And could we embroider with three threads instead of two, which we'd established that was two. And it's like, what does that have to do with this? Like, what is it? But they really thought they kind of presented this case so well. And I said, uh, no, that absolutely cannot happen. Because if that happens, your embroidery is going to be a lot... Uh, thicker and it's not going to have that shine that it has. Uh, no, 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 you cannot. <laughs> the meeting was like very, they were all speaking and I couldn't understand. And then uh, it's so, it has never changed. And their work, it, it, it sells itself. I mean, we do not, we have to educate, but we do not have to sell their work. And it's the same with all the art, all the textiles, whether it's the weaving or the block printing or the applique or the or the embroidery, it absolutely, if the work is done behind and they do the work and we do our work and we get the quality and, and so forth and the costing is done all right, it just sings. I mean, it just is down there, just people just are drawn to it and everything's right about it. That's what we try to make, is that our job is to make everything right about it. <laughs> and very much the artisans, we, we're very, spend a lot of time sending things back and forth. They know what they're where their work is in the store, what it looks like in the store, what it, we get customers to send us pictures of, this, of the work in their homes. Um, we keep detailed records of what colors sell, what colors don't sell. We take that back to them. They're very, uh, my love is traditional textiles, so I don't have to do too much work in design. All the design is, is left to the artisans almost exclusively, although we do, sometimes what happens is the artisans get ideas from the deli traders or whatever, and they go, what about if we do this, and, you know, we then go back to books and back to the basics and say, where does that actually come from? So, um, yeah, my love is traditional textiles. Our craft evolves and craft changes all the time, and that, I certainly support some of the um, I love some of the very very contemporary craft that's being done in the areas that we are in, but it, that's not what we what we trade for. So I think that's that's, that's good. me and may well. You've been listening to Charlotte Kwan recorded live while speaking in the workshop, The Working Traveler. The Working Traveler was presented as part of the Maywa Textile Symposium and was held on October 17, 2007. In Part 4 of The Working Traveler, John Gillow, Noor Jahan Bilgrami, and Charlotte Kwan fulfilled questions from the audience. This episode was first posted in February of 2008. For more information on Maywa Podcasts, visit our website at www.maywa.com. I'm Tim McLaughlin. Thank you for listening.